And welcome back to another episode here at the Culture and Sports Podcast. For those of you new to this channel, um, I'm Wesley Livingston. I'm Mike Scaramella. And we're your host. Um, our guest tonight, we have a very special guest tonight. I, what are we on our fourth or fifth yeah, fourth or episode? Fifth, yes, yeah. um, and our guests just keep getting better and better. I, I mean, know, oh my goodness. Awesome. Um, our guest tonight was uh, Penn State's very first director um, of universities, ethics and compliance, and chief ethics and compliance officer. Um, a Penn State graduate himself, earning a bachelor's degree in law enforcement, and then going on to get his Juris Doctorate um, uh, from law school. Um, a former special agent in the FBI, and uh, formerly served on the board of directors for the U.S. Center uh, for Safe Sport. Um, that's only part of his exciting 40-year um, career. Um, I'll leave the rest of it to him, Mr. Regis Becker. How yes. you doing? So we wanted to get Thanks, Wesley. Thanks, Mike. Good evening. I'm actually still on the board of directors for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Okay. Um, I was one of the inaugural board members, and I still serve on the board. I had previously served um, in an interim staff position as the interim CEO uh, for six or seven months, but I've, I've, uh, other than that, I had no break in service as a board member of the organization <laughs> since 2016, I think. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and I think, I think we want to, we definitely want to get into that, but we want to start with your you know, passion for sports when you were younger and kind of how uh, that kind of played a part in you getting to where you are right now. So uh, you had a couple of sports that you were uh, uh, you played when you were younger. Uh, do you want to kind of go into that and, and let us know the culture? Yeah, you know, you know, it's funny. I was never much of an athlete. always enthusiastic, but I was always the, the rec league guy, the intramural league guy, um, you know, the neighborhood teams. Yeah. And I really didn't play sports, um, you know, until really after college. I, I banged around a little bit in a Metro League football team while I was in college. But it was really weightlifting that, that got me uh, interested in sports. I started doing some lifting at Penn State and I was on the Penn State Powerlifting Club and we competed around Pennsylvania. Um, and when I graduated from Penn State, I walked on and tried out for the Pittsburgh, it was originally the Pittsburgh Ironman uh, football team, it was a semi-pro team and I played okay. uh, six or seven years in semi-pro teams in Pittsburgh. They'd turn over every couple of years, they'd go bankrupt. So, right? so, so what, posi <laughs> what positions did you play? Because you're a bigger guy. I, I mean, guard. yeah, okay. okay. I was so you're like a bigger so guy. I remember, like... <laughs> I remember the tryout. I had to, you know, we had a little mini combine tryout. You had to run a 40 on a cinder track and bench presses with 225 pounds. And oh, I remember no. it was, the reason I remember so well is the very next day I had a powerlifting competition. Oh, no. I had done, you know, I had maxed out my bench press. And so the next day I had to do a, do a, do a squat after doing you know, 40 yard sprints and uh, drills and the next day I had to squat, bench press, and deadlift at a meet. That makes you committed for sure. Again, never much of an athlete, but uh, enthusiastic participant. And I played, you know, I think five years of Pittsburgh Wolfpack and the Pittsburgh Colts. And we played, you know, Baltimore, Buffalo, Columbus, Chambersburg. We, we played all over the East Coast as a team. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So you get to travel again, around. Never really and... much of an athlete. And I competed in powerlifting the whole time. And later, you know, I don't want to bore you too much, but I always was a barbell guy. But later, as I got closer to middle age, I, I changed from powerlifting to weightlifting uh, and just fell in love with the sport. And that's how I got involved with USA Weightlifting first as a, as a master's level competitor and old guy, in other words, uh, <laughs> and volunteer coach and ultimately bought a gym and, and coached and ran a gym and was on the uh, board of directors for USA Weightlifting. So it was sort of really my love of barbells and weight training that was my closest and Favorites. It's crazy how you got into that that way because I, I feel like a lot of the a lot of the other people like I got into weightlifting after sports you know I got into sports and it's like oh you need to get bigger so now yeah. you need to start lifting weights in your case you, you got big first 
and then we're able to kind of just go I from there. It was there. a little opposite. Yeah, I just fell in love with lifting. I just didn't really transition. the whole idea. That's awesome. Um, so going going into that, um, was that your main passion? I mean, growing like you said, you started at a younger age. You played sports at a younger age. Did you feel like a good like team camaraderie? Like I know that you, you almost built you built your own team over there. So it's like you know. Oh yeah, you you guys know how it works. You know, it's really even neighborhood games, pickup games. I played a lot of you know rec basketball, summer league basketball, intramurals. Never good enough to make even a high school team. But I'll tell you, you just learn so much about people in those uh, in those situations that. You know, leadership comes to the fore. You see who, who ends up picking up, but it's not always the best athlete. You know, the guys or girls that sort of come to the fore and, and get to be the ones that organize things and, uh, you know, pick the teams and, okay, they're all going to meet Saturday too. Yeah. Just next time or whatever. <laughs> you know, you, you learn a lot early on about people. You learn what you're good at, what you're not good at, and, um, you know, it teaches you lessons that you can apply to the rest of your life, frankly. Absolutely. Do you think that brought you into, you know, into your law enforcement degree is that something like we were looking for like some team camaraderie and you're like hey look you know i want to get into something that's you know a team effort um maybe something like that to get you into it or yeah i think it was just always part of my personality i always wanted to be um you know like everybody else i, I love the heroes of my youth the cowboy shows the superheroes yeah. and we all grew up on that stuff Absolutely. right and I, you know i want to be a doogler i want to be a guy that was the answer not the problem you know and I, so i really gravitated to law enforcement and that's why i picked that major at penn state as an undergrad there, I, my first couple of years, I didn't pick a major, and then I saw a couple of FBI agents came to talk to one of our classes, huh. and uh, I said, that's pretty cool, you know, I like these guys, maybe I'll shoot to be in the FBI someday, and so um, if I hadn't declared my major by law enforcement, then I did after that session, and uh, that became kind of a goal of mine uh, after that. Was Penn State always the school that you, you dreamed of going to? No, I was actually a pretty lousy high school student, and I, I love Penn State to this day because they took a chance on me. Uh, I was actually admitted to one of their Commonwealth campuses on, on academic probation, essentially. I forget what they called the program. But I needed to get a you know 3.0 to stay in school after my first year. Because I had applied to schools late. As I said, I had, I, my grades weren't very good in, in uh, high school. And uh, so I was, I was delighted they took me even at, at, at the extension campus. And then after a couple of years, I transferred to State College. And, uh, Went to their, their branch, their main campus in University Park, Pennsylvania, and, and spent two more years there. And I graduated from Penn State. Then. But it wasn't a long-term dream. It was just circumstances were fortuitous that they were looking for. It worked uh, out that way. For their hey, well, yeah, you went to the bill. You got in. You got into the right place. I mean, Penn State's an awesome place to be. I mean, uh, I mean, we've always we've we've always watched your football games and different sports events and things like that. I mean, so it's like, it's definitely prestigious. And um, yeah, the alums there are you know insane. You guys have it, everybody it's crazy. there. Um, they have the biggest. I, I think they call it the biggest dues-paying alumni association in the world. And you can't go anywhere without running into a bunch of Penn State alumni. <laughs> I, when I was speaking a lot um, when I was at the university working, and I was uh, I'd go to conferences or something. I'd always ask how many Penn State grads in the audience and. There'd be a ton of hands yeah. involved. I mean, you can't go anywhere without running into the, the we are crowd, right? Absolutely. Did you did you network with a lot of those guys right away? Like, you know, because I know it's something that I didn't take as much advantage of as I wanted to when I was going to school, uh, where, you know, you, you really can't take it, you know, work with people, and, and it's almost becomes a team uh, with your alumni and things like that, you know, how you can work with them and how you can do different things. And Yeah, they expand. have a great alumni association network. I, I fortunately didn't really need it that much. I had done an internship with the district attorney's office as a, uh, you know, just an intern from, with a law enforcement degree, we needed to get two different internships mm -hmm. for uh, eight credits or something. And so I ended up uh, 
landing this internship at the DA's office investigations unit. And they kind of liked me, so they hired me part-time after my internship was over. And so I finished my degree while I was working part-time at the DA's office and then got a couple other promotions. And ultimately, right around when I graduated, in fact, they, uh, I got appointed a detective in the unit. And that's how wow. I started. It was Penn State's internship that allowed me to get started with that job. That's crazy how you went from that right back into Penn State. Um, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit. but well, I, It was not quite, it was pretty quick. It was like, I mean, not pretty quick. It was 30-some years later, I think. Oh, really? So it was. Yeah, how, how was... I, I had a lot, my longest career was actually in corporate America. I did eight years in law enforcement, 27 years in corporate America. And then the last five years I did at Penn State after the Sandusky um, scandal. Mm. I was hired to come there after Sandusky to set up a program. But, yeah, we can get to all that if you like. Oh, we definitely, I believe, will get to that. <laughs> it's definitely interesting stuff. But I mean, so when you got, so when you went left, F, uh, left the FBI, uh, and went into your corporate career, is there something that drove you to do that uh, in particular? Or did it just a good opportunity for maybe somebody that you knew? Yeah, I had been in law enforcement eight years. I was, you know, thirty-ish, and um, the FBI is a great organization. They pick great people, but it was still the government, you know. And I was, hmm. I was looking for, you know, just a different, a different kind of. Uh, Less bureau, I shouldn't say less bureaucratic because corporate America is bureaucratic too, yeah, but it yeah, was it's not quite as. The federal government's really bureaucratic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was I was probably going to end up in New York City as an agent. Nah. So <laughs> I knew I was going to be transferred soon. So I had I had worked a case with a Fortune 500 company that no longer exists, but called Union Carbide, when I was a county detective, and they were looking for an investigator. Uh, so they recruited me when I was just a baby FBI agent. I barely had a cup of coffee with the FBI. I was there, you know, three years or so. And so I left early and went to uh, Union Carbide as, as an investigator, special investigator in their uh, internal audits group, actually. And that's how I got my intro to corporate America. Nice. How, did, you, did you enjoy that right away? Was that something that you, you started? Yeah, it, was, it was a tough transition. Um, you know, everyone that comes out of law enforcement, one of the challenges you have is uh, you no longer have the gun, the badge, you know, search warrant, the arrest warrant, you have to, you know, work, work a lot more creatively mm -hmm. um, in, in uh, developing information, making cases, you know, so to speak. And uh, so it's, it's a transition for everybody. And, and corporate is different. Their goals obviously are different when you're, you're investigating, you know, malfeasance or some sort of misconduct against the corporation. You know, you're not, not looking to prosecute people necessarily. You're looking to get facts. Right. And then you determine whether that person needs to be disciplined or terminated or whether there's restitution involved. And then at the end of all that, you decide was a crime committed? And if so, you know, should we present that to the district attorney's office or to the U.S. attorney's office to see if they want to prosecute it? So it's a very different consideration. You know, when you get done, it's when you complete the investigation, it's evaluate the facts, and then what do we need to do as a corporation? One, from a human resource matter, do we need to discipline this person? Uh, two, uh, what are the weaknesses in our, in our internal controls that allow this to happen? And so you have an internal control consideration to, to determine how we prevent this, why did this happen? And then third, um, is this something we should go to the authorities with? So is there a, a moral obligation for us to turn this uh, over to the or, uh, organized law enforcement authorities to pursue further? Yeah, I can definitely see that being, um, I mean, obviously it's important for, for every company, but I mean, you have to, I feel like if you don't have that person 
that can keep things in line like that. And they don't have you. You were, I mean, you worked out perfectly. You had the FBI skills before you really went into that, so you had some background going into it. Investigative um, skills it, and yeah. interrogative skills. So it must have helped you just tremendously, just getting in there and like knowing where to look right away. Because I know that's a lot of a, you know. Yeah, but there's you know the the, the challenge is different because uh, that's when I went and got an MBA because I realized that there was not a, I had a law degree by then, and but I did not you know business wasn't my major, so I thought it was I needed to learn more about business. So fortunately. Back in those days, organizations would pay for you to get um, yeah. higher degrees. Nice. So I ended up getting an MBA from a local school, uh, and that helped me understand a lot better about you know the business environment and what they were trying to achieve and how they were going about it, and, you know, financial documents, etc. So, uh, but, but you're right. At the end of the day, it's it's human conduct, right? It's human behavior. Is it? And then, you know, the big question is: Is this just a one-off? Is this just misconduct by this person who, for whatever reasons, or is it a cultural thing? Or we have a real problem here. Yeah. Is it deeper than that? Have you, have culture you, or the controls. Have you come across a lot of situations where the, the culture for some companies were quite a bit off and you, you had to kind of put it fully together where it's not just like one or two things where it's just like it ended up going into some investigation that you had no idea it was going that way? And uh, I, was, I was fortunate because I always worked for companies um, that had pretty good cultures and they really encouraged, uh, you know, proper behaviors and so that's why they hired people like me uh, but I've had friends and colleagues who work for organizations and I won't mention any names but <laughs> yeah. they felt that um, these these companies were willing to maybe uh, you know look the other way a little bit when they you know a classic example is you have one of your top performers in sales say and they're cheating on their expenses or something mm. doing you know or, yeah, well it's not costing the company much money and that's that really bringing in more money the than business. they're spending. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll give them a you know slap on the wrist. And fortunately, I never worked for a company like that. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, they were always pretty good. And you know, you talk about culture. That creates the culture because if you fire somebody for stealing, you know, somebody's lunch in a factory, a low-level employee who does something stupid and you know steals something or takes home some company goods, mm-hmm. and you fire. Them. But then you ignore the manager or the, or the senior salesperson who's cheating. Yeah, in a much bigger way and, yeah, because yeah. they're more important to the company. That really sends a message and creates a culture that you don't want in the organization. So and people are going to notice that. Always work, and people are going to notice that. It's an organization that supported doing the right thing at all levels. Yeah, and I feel like definitely people will notice that more at the higher level. So, I mean, you know, you get somebody that slides on the higher level, everybody lower is going to be like, oh, well, if they're sliding with it, you know. Exactly. Why not, exactly. you know, so. Yeah, that makes it difficult. You, know, you see the mayor uh, going to a party without a mask on, but everyone else in the city has to wear the mask. You know? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. You see the it's the same there. thing. Absolutely. You have to walk the talk. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, when you ended up making that transition um, over into Penn State working um, under ethics compliance and as the chief ethics and compliance officer over there, um, where, did you, where did you see you took most of um, kind of your techniques? Did you see yourself more in the police, the FBI hat, or did you see yourself more in like the, like the corporate compliance officer methods to, yeah, to it was, Penn it was State? It was much more corporate compliance officer, and it was very collaborative, Wesley. It was, you know, I, I wasn't like you know, the Lone Ranger rode in on my horse to save Penn State. They had, they had already made the commitment to make this right. Um, okay. One of the things they did that was different than some of the other scandals you see is they accepted you know, they got a penalty from the NCAA. There was, uh, you know, there was a free report that had a lot of us recommended um, 
improvements they make, and they accepted all of that and said, we're going to make this, uh, we're going to take these recommendations seriously, we're going to make these changes, we're going to build an organization to help us um, be the kind of organization we know we are and we can continue to be. Uh, and so they did that. They really were committed to it, and they, they one of those recommendations was bring in someone like me as an ethics and compliance officer. And so I had great support, and it was far from a one-man show. It was everybody from the president of the university, um, football coaches, the, uh, the athletic director, everyone was supportive. Uh, the board, you know, it was interesting. It was a, an interesting dynamic, and I'm not really talking out of school here, but the board was an interesting dynamic because a lot of them felt very strongly that Joe Paterno had been treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he was terminated, and uh, they thought that he was he was sort of a scapegoat. Sandusky was the real bad guy, and that Coach Paterno had done so much good for the university. He was tr- treated unfairly, and then Unfortunately, you know, a couple months later, he was dead. He died of cancer. Wow. Uh, so there was a little bit of resentment about uh, from some of the board members about that Coach Paterno didn't get treated all that fairly. But you know, that was something we worked through and worked with them on, um, and they were largely supportive of the of the changes we made as well. And I, I feel mean, like no one ever agrees 100%. When you're putting in a compliance program, you're always going to have people that don't like certain things, and we don't need that. And, you know, that's overkill, and we don't want to create a Gestapo here. You're always going to hear those things. Um, so that's a normal part of any organization, especially starting up uh, a function like this. So, But Penn State uh, gave me tremendous support. Uh, we had a good team. All the other department heads uh, from the academic side and the business side of the university, the athletic department, uh, they were supportive, and they, they helped us work to uh, implement all the recommendations from the free report. Well, they definitely did the right thing. I mean, um they came back. Obviously, they they put it. In, they didn't they didn't wait, which is good. A lot of people will wait. They'll wait a while, and then all of a sudden, you know, they'll they'll start a program after something else happens. Uh, in this case, you know, I right. feel like you know they got it done right away. Uh, Joe Paterno, that that's I mean, it is what it is. But at the same time, sometimes you have to make an example of of, of people. If if maybe they knew something was going on or they had may have heard something. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's a tough situation. Not everybody's going to agree with anything at any time. It's hard to say, Mike, but you'll notice that in any organization, whether it's, uh, I'll leave the government out because who knows how they make decisions, but (laughs) certainly in business and in most major institutions, when there's a a major scandal like that that really impacts the entire organization, the leader has to go. Right. And and Coach Paterno, as great as he was as as an individual and, and the things he did, it happened on his watch. Right. So whether he knew about it or he didn't know about it, I think thinking was, you know, and it happens all the time in corporate America, maybe the CEO did nothing wrong at all, but if there's a major scandal, the top of the house has to go. So I think that's what happened. And some people, um, you know, again, resented that, but some people resented what happens in the corporate world too. Yeah, well, so. and sometimes you know those let those those people slide, and and then you like just like you said before, it creates that culture. Like, oh well, you know, they last night he didn't say anything, so you know if we let that slide, it could create a bad culture, just in general. Yeah, exactly. So. And, and it makes it, it makes it easier to implement some of the changes uh, as well when you change leadership at the top. Right, because it's not so much this is how we do it, and it's this, this, and this, rather than right. you're not tiptoeing around the previous leader. Yeah. Right, and it's tough to it's tough for a lot of those guys because a lot of them, you know, they've been there for a very long time. And it's like, you know, you step into that position and it, it almost feels uncomfortable sometimes to be like, oh, well, we should be doing this and this and this. And you feel like you're stepping on their toes, but it's something that needs to get done. So it's like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I kind of want to know, how are your feelings going into, like, the, your first, your stint at Penn State, um, working there, you know, knowing your history, spending time there? Um, 
dealing with the Sandusky situation, how did you feel going into the situation? Was it more of like, I'm, I'm glad to it's me going in there and trying to help fix the situation? Was it more like, oh, it, it sucks it has to be, it's this school, but I'm, I'm glad it's me still? How did you kind of yeah, feel I going was, into I was it? excited, Wesley. I, I really enjoyed the challenge. Um, they were, as I said, they made it easy for me to get acclimated. I had no prior higher ed background. Higher ed management is really different from corporate America where I had spent 27 years. Okay. So, you know, it's a very collaborative environment. You have to, um, you know, get a bunch of people to say yes before you do anything. It's yeah. not, you know, it's always fun. The boss says do this, and everybody says, okay, boss. And, in academia, it's a much more collaborative environment. Everybody debates it, they discuss it, everyone gets a vote. Um, so that was a new environment for me. And I had to learn pretty quickly that you had to be collaborative. You couldn't just issue edicts. You know, we, no. we did issue some policies, we, but we worked those policies through um, very collaboratively with the, the faculty and the other staff. We, we got lots of input, you know, and it was a team. It was the general counsel, it was the, the CFO, even the president. Everyone was involved in looking at, at these um, changes we were trying to make in putting a compliance program together and everybody uh, agreed you know new training we were putting in nobody likes to do training right you know, especially in, in a higher education the, the faculty you know what are you trying to teach us we're all yeah, PhDs. We're, yeah we are. so we, we had to be walk you know sort of tiptoe around that a little bit and, and get their buy-in um, try to make it time efficient you can't just layer on a bunch of hours of training so it was, a, it was a different environment, and really, I grew a lot, Wesley. I learned a lot in five years there, uh, made some good friends, and you know, I think we made an impact. Um, and it was totally different than, not totally, but a, a lot different than my, my corporate experience. So I was very glad I did it, glad I had the experience. Um, so who who actually starts that? So say say if you're, you are going to implement a program like this, uh, I mean, it obviously starts at the top. You said there's collaboration, things like that. Uh, I mean, does it come from one specific person at first? We're like, hey, look, we need to get this done. And then everybody kind of jumps on, like, yeah, you're right. We should start doing this. Well, I joke, you know, that I had the benefit of a scandal. You know, it's hard to come into an organization that's running on all eight cylinders. Absolutely. Everybody's yeah, doing yeah. great. They right. have no, um, no misconduct matters, no major misconduct matters. Then you got a tougher fight to get everybody to buy in. You know, why are we doing this? We're a good organization. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't cheat. Why are we putting these ethics programs in or these compliance programs. At Penn State, they had already acknowledged that they were going to implement the free report recommendations. There was like 118 recommendations. And Penn State had a t put together a team of senior leaders that said, uh, we're going to implement every one of these and we're going to, we're going to oversee the process. And uh, so that was the group that I largely reported to and worked with as we implemented uh, every one of those uh, recommendations at the free so obviously the president though had to be on board and he was he was a terrific supporter and the senior leadership all was supportive of that so in some ways it was kind of easy to go into that environment if we're, if it had been a much lesser problem um, we might have had a little more trouble getting buy-in from everybody yeah but you know these things you, you'll notice when people add these organizations you know a year before I went to Penn State uh, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Ohio State had Tattoo Gate. You remember the, the problems at Penn State? The athletes were yeah. trading sports memorabilia for free tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I do remember. You're that. a little young, so you might not remember. Uh, um, what was the quarterback's name? Big tall kid, Pittsburgh kid. Uh, he was implicated. Not, a lot not, of these not Ben, right? Kids. It wasn't Ben, right? No, no, no. Ben, ben went to a <laughs> Mac school. This was oh, okay. this was Ohio State. Anyway, uh, they started a similar program before Penn State did. They put a lot of resources into it. But they, and they have uh, 
you know, a lot more uh, buy-in because of that. You know, an example, and I'm not trashing anybody, but Michigan, for instance, with the Nasser uh, scandal, mm-hmm. the gymnastics problem, they were a little slow. I'm not sure they've really bought in yet to acknowledge that this was an institutional problem that they needed to make drastic changes, and they sort of fought. I, in my view, this is personal opinion. I don't want to insult anybody up there, but they they didn't follow the path that Ohio State and Penn State did. And maybe they had other, the reasons why they did did it the way they did, but they seemed to be a little bit um, resistant to change when the Nasser scandal broke. I think they considered it, he was sort of a the U.S. Olympic Committee problem more than a Michigan you know, problem. Which, Michigan State problem. Michigan State, yeah. Let's see. Um, so, do you think that? Uh, so I say, w- once you get into, w- once you got into Penn State, did you ever collaborate with any other schools on any of these other programs? So, like other uh, ethics and compliance um, uh, guys, have you talked to those guys? Implemented anything with anybody else, um, or has it been kind of just absolutely. focused on Penn State? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Um, you know, I was happy to learn that there was an organization that, that put on a higher ed compliance conference every year. So I went to that with, within three or four months of being at Penn State. I went to that conference and I started meeting my my colleagues, and they were all like, I'll tell you, they couldn't have been more supportive. Um, shared a lot of ideas with me, and then the interesting thing was in the coming couple of years, then because we were implementing all these recommendations from, from the free report, many schools were calling Penn State. Mm-hmm. Asking for, you know, how are you, what are you guys doing? How are you doing it? Uh, there's oh, lots of you know, nuance to putting these programs together and lots of little programs uh, that you have to get to get your hands around. And so we have made great uh, friends and co- collaborators with universities around this, the country. And then formally, we established an organization. It wasn't really an organization. It was, it was uh, uh, just the gang from the Big Ten. We had about, there's, the Big Ten has 14 schools in it. I think 10 of us had similar positions. Oh, and nice. so we would meet uh, a couple of times a year. Once we met, we'd meet in Chicago sometimes at the uh, Big Ten offices. And then I think we met a couple of times at conferences. But we try to meet at least, at least once a year, the Big Ten compliance officers, and, uh, and compare notes and, you know, share problems and yeah. commiserate, and, you know, the things you usually <laughs> do with your colleagues, right? Um, so th- that was interesting. So we got to know we could say, well, Iowa's doing this, or Ohio State's doing this, or, you know, I talked to the guy out at uh, Illinois, and they've got an interesting program, or there's a new training uh, program being put together at Northwestern, or something, you know, you just share ideas, and yeah. so it was really helpful. And then were you able and to implement mental health, too? Yeah, were you able to uh, implement a lot of that stuff at Penn State that you learned and kind of collaborated with those guys? Is it? Well, as I said, we had a blueprint already. We had right. the free report, but to, it part, you know, parts of implementing that would be how are we going to do this particular thing? How are we going to schedule our education? So we did benchmarking. Um, it would sometimes validate what we wanted to do, and sometimes it would give us a new twist on what we were what we were trying to do. So I, I wouldn't say as much as we got the general idea from them as we got some nuance and some uh, implementation ideas from, from our colleagues at other schools. Nice. Um, recently, I like to wanted to bring this up. Um, recently, it's been known that uh, players are now able to get paid off their name, I- image, and likeness. Um, and I just kind of wanted to know, as, as an ethics and compliance officer at, at the time you were, what kind of talks you know, did you and your team have um, about the situation? And then um, 
another secondly uh what kind of other programs do you think would have to be created you know to kind of support this um this new implemented you know without these guys flying off the chain i'm glad i'm not there now wesley yeah. uh, i'm glad i'm out of this but <laughs> you know it was interesting the ban is the bannon, bannon case ucla case is where, where this all came from right there was the yeah. basketball player at ucla i think it was a forward in ed bannon and the NCAA or somebody was using his image and likeness, and he's the one who brought the lawsuit that ultimately led to this ruling that said athletes can use their image and likeness. Yeah, if you're going to use it, then why can't I? Technically, is exactly. And and making making it from money. an ethical standpoint, it makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we that was just going through the courts when I was there, so we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that. I'll tell you the thing that sent um, a shot across the bow when I was there was just in, in, in its infancy was the whole gambling issue mm. you know previously you could only gamble in las vegas and then new jersey sports yeah. betting and everything else was through and then you, you get know, a cell phone crime. and then you get a yeah. cell phone and then you could bet from anywhere you, you see your bookie you get out of the bar and you see your bookie exactly um, and that's how you bet and so we always were a little bit worried about you know everyone's worried about sports betting right there's been a few scandals over the years nothing major certainly recently but when they started talking about legalizing sports betting um, that started people thinking and again I was gone before it became finally implemented but I'm sure that's added some wrinkles to the compliance programs oh, man. now because as you guys know it's really easy to drop a pass miss a free throw you know not even lose the game say that you know it's a it's a 10-point spread and uh, oh, yeah. a field goal kicker misses a field goal and when they win by eight or something you know yeah Lose somebody so a lot of money. Got to have some kind of program uh, to at least train on that, to educate people, to you know, warn them, to keep them um, thinking about those things. And I think most kids are, you know, ninety-nine percent of kids are absolutely honest. Yeah. But every once in a while, you're going to have a problem with somebody who's in, whose family's maybe in big trouble. So actually, the image of likeness thing is kind of good because it, it allows top athletes to make some money. Uh, right. And the, the university wouldn't have made it anyway, frankly. Yeah. It's, it's new money. You know, car dealers are paying a kid to do an advertisement for them. Um, it, it makes good sense. And I think maybe that way it, it actually takes some of the pressure off uh, the gambling temptations, right? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Unfortunately, image and likeness is only going to be your top guys. You're not going to have Right. You're going to have yeah. maybe two or three guys on your, on your you know, that third string guard, he's not getting anybody. Yeah. Nobody's so, paying him to do anything. Yeah, so you're not thinking it's going to change like the dynamic of conferences now. You're not seeing these these smaller conferences going to start uh, making a play now. Or you never know. You never know. Look at the SECs doing now. They're yeah. Pushing people from the Big Twelve. Yeah, they got. Who uh, knows who's going to be in what league next year? You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what's going to happen with the ACC, the Big Ten, you know, the Mountain West or whatever? I mean, these. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, and then the athletes, you know, how's that going to affect recruiting? Yeah. Certainly, everybody wants to be on national championship games, and you know, so the SECs, you know, other than Clemson or Ohio State, the SEC usually has two of the, two of the top six teams in the playoffs in football every yeah. year. Um, so it's, it's going to have some impact on that. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that, how that shakes out. Yeah, it will be fun to to kind of see what happens, um, especially. I mean, because it could be. Really good thing for for you know the ethics and everybody, but it could also sway you in a bad direction where you're like, okay, well, you know, it could keep keep up or keep people on track by saying, hey, look, you know, if you mess up, you're gonna lose this, and yeah. they will. But at the same time, you also got kids making more money, and who knows what uh, 19 or 18 year old guy is gonna do 
you know, yeah. leaving leaving the game and going out to a party or doing whatever. I mean, that could totally blow everything for them for them and in the future, you know. So it's a slippery slope, I feel like, for some some people. We've seen that a good percentage well, of athletes end up, you know, broke after they retire after a year or two. Um, or you know, if they even make the league, if they right. even make the league, yeah. Uh, you know, they fortunately big schools like Penn State and maybe most of the schools have programs. When you first get in there, they you know they talk to these kids about the dangers of. You know, all the dangers, all the temptations and the problems that they may encourage, but encounter. But they also talk about the likelihood of making a living at that game, you know, which is very, very small. Yeah. Even in schools like Penn State and Ohio State, how many guys make the league every year? Two or three? Yeah. Four or five, maybe the big year, right? Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, Mike and Wesley, the, the thing, the bigger issue, I think, with the um, image and likeness is, you know, we're talking about culture, right? You guys are all about culture. Right. When you have athletes that are more worried about their brand than about the team, um, and I'm not saying, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but, but let's face it, if someone thinks they can make money by standing out more, and not just on the field, but standing out generally, you know, on social media, yeah. and I want to build my brand, I want to build my brand, so my image and likeness payments, so I'm going to make a lot more money, and I can continue this after I'm out of school, if I build a big enough Instagram following or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. you see a little bit of that in the pros now, you know, there's been some, you know, here in Pittsburgh, little minor things with Juju Smith-Schuster, their uh, wide receiver. He's got a big Instagram following. He was doing uh, little gimmicks every week. He was jumping on the opponent's logos in the field every week for his Instagram followers, filming it, and then you know putting it on his Instagram. And it led to a little bit of tension. And they had another young receiver who was getting advice from Juju about building his brand. You know? Oh, boy. It's a different sort of approach. <laughs> but imagine you start doing that in, in college. If yeah. you're a you know, sophomore guard, and uh, will that change the way you – perform or will change the way you behave off the field? Will it undermine cohesiveness in the team by you showboating um, on social media, try to build your image and build your brand up so you're gonna get more followers and you can sell more, uh, you know, some more of yourself uh, time-wise. So I think that's an interesting thing to, to look at for the next yeah. five to 10 years. And and how would that work? So say, um, say you go to a school who's, um, has is sponsored by like Adidas and you have a player on that same on that team who goes out there and gets an endorsement um, from you know Puma or something. Can he go out there and wear Pumas on the field on game day on Saturdays? Or I don't think so. There's a contract, right? So yeah. Nike and Adidas and the big you know, Reebok and so forth, they they pay the uh, universities, they pay the schools, right? And there's a legal contract that can be enforced. So the schools have to wear, and they have to wear the logos in a certain way, and they have to you know there's very strict performance. Uh, contingencies in the contracts that they can only use the logos in the following ways and they have to use uh, that so I, I think it would be difficult to do it on the field okay. off the field is a different matter if you know it's going to be interesting to see if a player you know is hyping you know puma or something that's a really good point an adidas school or a nike school and he's on instagram showing off his new you know whatever shoes and talking about how great they are that's going to be an interesting dynamic as well and again it goes to the cohesiveness of the team is that going to create cultural problems in the organization? Yeah. You know, yeah. who does? Maybe not, but it's an interesting question, Wesley. I think you might be onto something. And every and every year, you know, you're going to have every few years you're going to have different guys. So I mean, I mean, I've been on teams. I played baseball, football my whole life. So you know, I've been on teams where you know we have the individuals, and they're just the individuals. And you know, it really like yeah. you know they might be doing great, but at the same time, like all the teams that we've done well, every games, all the all the seasons that we've done really well, we've worked together as a team. Nobody really went out of their way to stand out you know everybody brought each other up and i feel like you know you right. have that 
that culture in a team, I feel like that's good. And I feel like that's a lot of coaching as well. Um, cause we, right. I had coaches that were like, Hey, I'm not going to deal with this. Like, you're not going to do this because if you are, you're not going to play. And you know, I feel right. like sometimes that's, that's needed for some of those guys that are just kind of getting into it, especially the guys that are starting to make money with, with all this stuff. Exactly. You know, it's interesting that one of the, one of the challenges before, and maybe it still is a big challenge. I know some of the AAU basketball club programs, um, they've got a lot of shoe money sponsorship in there. Yeah. I think there's been at least some, you know, we had the one FBI case a couple of years ago, and there's been some noise already about, uh, you know, coaches, not, not unlike your coach, who was all about the team and doing things, they were, they were working uh, maybe for the betterment of the athletes, maybe for the betterment of the club, but really influencing, they say, recruitment decisions based on their shoe sponsor. So if you're, the, if you're an AAU basketball club and Nike pays for all your shoes and maybe helps pay your expenses to, to travel, the tournaments and there's five schools recruit, recruiting you and two of them are nike schools and uh, two are adidas or something mm. that club's that club coach has a big influence and that maybe if nike's not very ethical about it and i shouldn't pick on nike i'm not picking on nike yeah, so just, shoe company a yeah. uh, has somebody representing them that isn't that ethical they will try to use their influence with that club team to get you to go to their school to club a's you know, to, to shoemaker a's sponsored school that's a that's We've a good point seen some allegations like that in the past uh, and obviously there's also been allegations that money changes hands but that's another interesting thing the shoe money is big in basketball oh, so yeah. Those, oh, yeah. the big shoe companies they pay for those aau clubs where the lebrons of the world you know get noticed first when they're 13 14 15 years old they're playing on these aau teams and they're all sponsored by shoe companies. The good ones are. Yeah, yeah, because they're so. either coached by an ex NBA player or you know a current somebody's got NBA player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that, so. yeah, you're right. That could definitely influence. And who knows if the coach is getting a little kickback from that? Say, hey, look, yeah. you know this guy wants to go no to play. Question, you, know? you know, if you could, if you could deliver this kid to shoe company A's, you know, ABC University, there's a little something in it for you. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm just thinking like a cop. I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody. No, well, hey, that's what you got to do because otherwise, you know, you got to get in front risks, of these right. problems. These you know? are the risks you have to think about. Yeah, you got to get in front of them. Otherwise, they're going to happen. People yeah, are going to know what to think do. about those things and put uh, procedures in place to prevent them. Absolutely. Yeah. Education and prevention. Um, right. Let's, uh, let's kind of dive into uh, safe sport. So I know, I know you are still on the board right now for safe sport, correct? Right. Um, kind of just tell us what... Um, yeah, what, what, is, is, what is Safe Sport? Yeah, tell us a little bit about Safe Sport and what. Yeah, Safe Sport's an organization. Actually, it's been around. It's in concept. It started over ten years ago, and interestingly, it was actually started by the United States Olympic Committee. They they had an, an ethics officer, and one of their senior uh, executives signed this ethics offer to start working on this concept of Safe Sports that would encourage, um, put rules in place for how coaches, athletes interact, and uh, how they treat each other, and would have an, uh, you know, eventually it evolved into an independent organization, and the U.S. Olympic Committee, U.S., it's now U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee is the official name of it now. They eventually spun it off into an independent organization. So Safe Sport, again, was a germ of an idea at the Olympic Committee. They spun it out, and as I say, I think 2015, 16, and this separate board was created of independent people. And they got people that were specialists in you know, uh, child mistreatment and uh, you know, 
there's a physician on there, a pediatric specialist specializes in, in childhood uh, problems. Um, some people that have worked with the big brothers and big sisters, uh, the people that work with the boys club and girls clubs of America. Uh, that's the kind of people they look for who did misconduct investigations in those organizations. And that's nice and the to idea see. was to create um, rules for how athletes treat each other, how coaches treat athletes to prevent abuse in sport and to have people to create a culture um, of uh, fair treatment, equitable treatment. And uh, if those things weren't carried out, an investigative arm to investigate those abuses in sport, uh, whether it's sexual abuses or just uh, harassment and bullying, what we call emotional and physical abuse, a coach slapping a kid around or, or a bully on a team who's treating a uh, treating younger kids or smaller kids badly. We wanted to have rules in education to, treat, to teach them how to uh, treat one another. And then also an investigative arm where if they didn't do that, there was, a, there was a misconduct matter, an independent arm to come in and investigate. Because, you know, in the past, the sport itself, the sport would investigate itself. Right. And that works out well. That can work out well, I should say. But if you look at the, you know, the, the big example, of course, is gymnastics. Um, people uh, have rightfully claimed gymnastics had these complaints about Dr. Nasser, and Dr. Nasser was a rock star in, in gymnastics, so they didn't investigate as aggressively as they should. And now that you've learned, even the FBI has been accused of turning uh, a blind, blind eye, eye to it. Yeah, I just and, and stuff's coming out right now. Still, it's it's pretty crazy. Exactly. So Safe Sport was created to avoid all that. Safe Sport is a completely independent organization. They have. Uh, uh, professional investigators, former FBI, former NCIS, former police officers, former investigators from universities. They have a really um, blue chip list of people that can investigate these cases and get to the bottom of them with no interference from the sport at all. Yeah. And they make you know, fair decisions. They do the investigation. They make a fair decision um, on behalf of what they call the respondent. I mean, the reporter and the respondent. So the, re the reporter is someone who says, I've been the victim of ABC. The respondent is the person they're accusing of that. And I was just so, going to ask you. Safety. Yeah, I was just going to ask you same go kind ahead, of thing. What, what would be the process of that? So if somebody is, is you know coming across some abuse. Um, is it somebody else reporting it, or is it usually somebody calling like you know is, are they calling in or how kind of how does that work? So the and, and how's the process have, uh... Yeah, there, there's a number you can call, and there's a, a website. And so Safe Sport One, all sports now, uh, the athletes are, and the coaches and the administrators, everybody's required to take Safe Sport training. And they talk about, one, recognizing the signs of abuse, and then, two, how to report that abuse if you see it happen. And so uh, every, pretty much every athlete in the, com in the Olympic athlete in the country, and there are in the Olympic sports, there's something like 7 million participants. So every one of them that's under the aegis of the U.S. Uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee has taken the training and knows that safe sport is available to them. Wow. Uh, the challenge is safe sport had to build, like any organization, you have to build the trust of the athletes. Right. Some of them still, you know, were a little slower accepting that they were truly independent, that they weren't really working on behalf of the sport or the U.S. Olympic uh, Committee. So, you know, building that trust has been a, a, a strong um, initiative for, for Safe Sport. And we've, I think we've done a pretty good job. I think every year uh, the number of athletes that one file complaints and the two uh, are aware of and take the training of Safe Sport grows and grows. So it's just, it's really become a remarkable organization, um, and they've they've investigated over three thousand cases 
and uh, they've suspended um, well over 100 coaches. I'm not sure the exact how many is. I should have looked up my stats before I, I talked it, to you guys. It's very close. I was looking at it right before. Very close to that, yeah. Um, I don't have them in front of me, but I was just I was going to ask you on, uh, you know, how often, you know, so you get about, you know, that many around per year. Would you say like, you know, or, or daily? Are you saying you're getting, are you, are you getting like daily calls from, from things? From... No, they'll get sometimes three, 300 in a month, one month. Um, so they've investigated over 3,000. I forget how many total complaints they've had. It's probably on the website, but they have, uh, there was a huge volume of cases. Now, COVID slowed it down a little bit, right. which was kind of good because it allowed the organization to catch up with all the investigations. Okay. Right. Remember, they were starting from nothing. They started with like two employees and four employees. And how do you investigate 3,000 cases, you know, with four <laughs> employees? So they're now up, they have a full staff of maybe 100 people there. Wow. Uh, close to 100 people. Yeah, spread out the Some of them are in education. Some of them are invested in, in the investigation side. What they call the investigation side is called response, uh, response uh, side of the organization, and so they are the ones who actually go out and do the field investigations, uh, and then the education side develops the training for all the coaches, athletes, parents, administrators, to make sure they uh, uh, they understand the organization and what the obligate what their obligations are as athletes, coaches, and, and administrators, but also what to do if they see problems. Do they do they bring a lot of the a lot of the questions a lot of things that happen straight to the board and then you guys decide hey look you know we need to figure no, out this in fact that's the beauty of it we we get very few if no details the cases it's completely confidential because um, they don't want us influencing anything either right. we we are to run the organization from a financial standpoint from a governance standpoint so the role of the board is to make sure they're adequately funded they're adequately staffed and they're meeting their their customers you know expectations that we're investigating these cases, but they don't come and brief us on, on these cases. We read about them in the papers like everybody else. Um, we, we may get wind that there's there's a big investigation going on, but it's more, um, less in the papers. The board generally doesn't hear about any investigations. Oh, I would just like to, good thing. Yeah, and I like the way you guys set up your board. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of, I work with a lot of board members right now, and they just put just random people on the board. But like, you should not be on the board, you know? And, and in your case, you got, you know, uh, somebody from each specialty, which I feel like is is needed and that's what a board should be but you know you don't always yeah, see we, that we now have a woman from the uh you should look at the look up the board members are very impressive we woman from the nfl now uh one of the fellows that just retired from the original board members he was a general in the u.s army and he was in charge of the u.s army's elite athlete program <laughs> so they got a lot of expertise on this board uh to really make sure that um you know we understood how to set up a governance program and we were familiar with the subject matter but we're not the subject matter experts. Those are the people on staff that actually do the investigations, yeah. and develop the training, and deliver the training. And uh, I think it's made a huge impact in the country. Uh, as they say, every athlete knows about it now. Uh, you know, Lockwood will never see another type master type case because we'd have gotten to it very, very early. And you, you just don't see. Years. You don't see. You know, it, it, it's just it, it amazes me how much. Uh, I'll try to put it into words. It's just way, it's a lot better because, you know, back then nobody really knew. I mean, it's, nobody was saying anything. Athletes didn't say anything because they don't know, really. You know, it's just like, oh, well, it might be normal. Right. But, you and, know, and it's you, kind of just accepted. And, and some of these cases are just embarrassed to come forward. Right. Yeah. Uh, I saw Sugar Ray Leonard speak, and, and Sugar Ray Leonard, again, again, one of the toughest guys in the world, yeah, right? Absolutely. World champion for all those years. He was molested as like a 15 year old boy by a coach in the front seat of a car. Uh, he talked about it publicly years later. And it's funny, you uh, never mentioned it until years later. Just like a lot of these guys, and it's it's nice yeah. to have a cup, like, you know, a, you know, an organization like this where they can come out and not feel, you know, 
too pressured or anything like that. Yeah, they're, right. they're like they're... Especially, you know, look at Jerry Sandusky, uh, you know, the, the yeah. things he was convicted of. Um, you know, these kids, how, how, and a lot of these kids were from bad homes that, that Jerry Sandusky took advantage of. You know, they're powerless. And here's this big, big deal. He was, you know, a big deal defensive coordinator for Penn State. Um, you know, he got access to this great facility and all these big heroes that they would see on TV. Yeah. He took them to these fancy places and took them to games and, um, you know, and then what are they going to do? Their 14-year-old kids are going to they're going to turn turn him in to who? Right. Single single parent homes, um, and so a lot of these kids didn't really have an option yeah. where to go. So now that's what Safe Sports trying to provide that everybody is trained so that even if the uh, if the parent isn't aware or the coach isn't aware that somebody would be a teammate, uh, since they've all taken the training. Everyone's seen uh, how to how to uh, recognize red flags for abuse, and yeah. so they can all tell these people where to go get help, or they can make a call themselves and say, "I want I want to report this particular coach." Which makes so it better because you know true. now they're able to do that on their own, whereas before it's like you know you have to talk to your your parents or somebody else about it back then, and it and and that like you said, it's it sometimes it can be embarrassing. Sometimes I mean they'll get involved eventually, and, but and you could see it's making a difference. Um, having the first active NFL game player to come out um you know that's yeah. that's big you know i think that starts you know from all of this this the education and the, the knowledge of you know when abuse is being shown or being comfortable in your own skin or how you know and, and how you treat each other you yeah know, and uh, how you'll be perceived who, yeah, who's no. gonna call, you know used to be the, the uh epithets that people would use for gay people all yeah. your teammates queers or fags yep well, how about, how about this queer is an all-pro defensive end? Right. Exactly. Yeah, probably <laughs> kick your ass, yeah, for sure. You know, so you get that kind of – people are starting to understand, hey, they're no different than you or I. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and it's no longer – it's not an insult. You know, it shouldn't be an insult. No. Uh, to be gay, yeah. Based, based be, on someone's yeah. sexual preference. Yeah. So no. uh, that's, that's happily changing in the sports world, and I think safe sport is – is helping create that environment where it's safe. And it's giving people to confidence to do it, you know, because people didn't have confidence to do that before. And now with, with different resources, I mean, I feel like it's just going to get easier and easier. And there's, I guarantee, so many more, you know, op- you know, not openly gay people, but it's just a lot, like a lot of other people that, that haven't come out yet, but are still, I mean, they're just waiting for that confidence. Yeah. And this is definitely going to be something that helps with that. And Yeah, even not just athletes. I think, you know, right. people who watch sports, you know, the, the typical consumer of sports, you know, will will learn from these, you know, things as well so i think it's i think it's awesome absolutely yeah and that, that's what it's all about transparency honesty uh treating people right hopefully even the coaches who are probably some of the worst offenders now with these slurs they'll learn you know and, yeah. Oh, yeah and it's almost yeah, just a, quick. a full change in culture <laughs> yeah. you know real quick yeah get more civilized right yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah, it's, it's all a good thing i agree with you guys it's really a good a good standard for sport to step up now and start recognizing yeah definitely. yeah, definitely. Well, you got to do it now because, I mean, like I said, I mean, the, the earlier, the, the better. The more resources, the better. And, you know, it's only going to get right. better from here, I feel like. So, right. Yeah. So, Reese, I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. Um, it's actually this, gone by really <laughs> fast. By really fast. Really fast talking to you. Yeah, so I'm sure there's so much more we could we could talk about. Um, <laughs> kind of just want to talk about our, what are you doing these days? I know you, you re- retired um, a few years ago. Um, what, what else you got yeah, going on? I, yeah, I still am on the Safe Sport board. Uh, I sit on the. Uh, remember that uh, Penn State campus that took a chance on me? And, and, <laughs> oh yeah. I, I sit on their their advisory board. The awesome. Nit- the uh, gave you a chance. Uh, so. um, I'm active at my law school. I try to uh, stay active with the athletic department at Duquesne University. I'm a big fan there. 
And then, of course, I still bang away on the weights. I'm I was just going to ask you now. that. I was just going to ask like you that. I still like to have fun uh, banging away on the barbells. But, yeah, my wife and I are happily retired, and uh, life is good. How many days a week are you lifting? Uh, usually two or three. Nice. You know, because I don't, I don't really do much body. I try to do everything I do. I try to do heavy, squat, deadlift, and clean, and press. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of time doing bodybuilding stuff. So the exercises I do make me too sore to do it very often. <laughs> so two three days a week is probably – Four days a week would be a lot for me. Usually it's uh, three is probably about the max. Uh, you spend much time in San Diego area? I have time not. In California. A couple years ago, I did some consulting with uh, SC San Diego. Uh, okay. Um, we did a consulting project with an ethics organization. And I had a good time. We were out there on campus uh, five or six days, made a couple different trips out there. And it's just such a beautiful place. I enjoyed the heck out of it. We met the athletic director, spent some time with the the chancellor and a lot of the senior people. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to see any games when I was there. Oh, okay. bummer. Uh, so yeah, I was. Maybe next time we get out. Yeah. Yeah, I was asking my. So my... You guys are from San Diego. Yeah, yeah we're, we're in uh, San Diego San right Diego. now, or a little bit North County area. So we're about thirty minutes okay. north of San Diego. La Jolla, up La Jolla toward La Jolla area. A little far Carlsbad, past that. That's it. Carlsbad Oceanside. Carlsbad Oceanside. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That area. Beautiful part of the world. Absolutely. Oh yeah. All right, love, well, love I got. I got. I do have one more question for you because I, I I saw it somewhere. I can't remember where I saw it, but I know that you got to travel to a bunch of different schools. Um, didn't, is that one of the things that you really enjoyed, just kind of going around and seeing the different places? Yeah, I didn't get to go to a lot of schools. As I said, we you know we collaborate, we meet together and get together, but I didn't get to visit a ton of schools. I talked to I talked to a ton of schools, but unfortunately I didn't get on campus for too many of them. Oh, okay. Um, so I've been around you know here and there. You know, obviously the Ohio State campus and yeah. a few other places, but uh, you know not, not a lot, not as many as I'd like to see because college campuses are great. After Working in the corporate world, you know, you go to a chemical plant, you know, <laughs> you don't see any green for two days. You go to a campus, they're all well-maintained. The facilities are gorgeous. Uh, where, where'd you guys? you guys in school now? Or did you go to school in that area? Uh, I went to a couple different schools. I played um, I played baseball at San Diego City College. Uh, okay. And then I went to Point Loma Nazarene, which if you haven't been there, go. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, literally beachfront property. I felt like I was at the beach every day. Uh, wow. It was gorgeous. That's awesome. And that's in Ocean Beach. Right. Um, or Point Loma, actually, Point Loma Ocean Beach area. What's the most nice. the most beautiful campus you've been on? Uh, Pepperdine's up there. Pepperdine's right, that's, that's in our area. That's I'm, right. I almost, Malibu. Went, there. Yeah, I almost Malibu. went there. Yeah, I'm hard like, to argue with Pepperdine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's got the most beautiful I'd backdrop. I have to say that's probably the nicest. Uh, although, I'll tell you, West Point was pretty awesome. West yeah. Point? Oh, yeah. West Point, they have a beautiful view down the Hudson River. And it's and just I'm just sort of overcome by the history of it. I just get choked up on you know the history Air Force Academy. I love Colorado Springs, the Air Force Academy. Yeah, I love West Point uh, in New York. Uh, but in terms of just raw physical beauty, Pepperdine is a little hard. Check out Point Loma Nazarene when you get over there. If you ever come down here, okay, I, I'll do that. Yeah, it's uh, it's gorgeous. sounds great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, around there, and then I, I went to San, Cal State San Marcos right after that, which is right down here too. Okay, so I ended up graduating from there and. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, great system. Cal has such a great system. You know, there's so many good schools out there. Oh, we had fun. You know, good people. Um, I, luckily, I had good coaches and things like that, so it, it definitely That's helped. Great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, and also when you come out here, check out my my girlfriend's father, um, Old Man Lifting on Instagram. He's a big bodybuilder. Oh, right? Yeah, Old Man Lifting is Frank uh, Frank Westall. Um, yeah, he's he's really big in, in to to powerlifting. Frank Westall. So. Uh, Westall. W-E-S-T-A-L-L, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Regis, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. We got so much out of you. Yeah, I know. That, that probably went faster than any of that. really went like flew by. It flew by. So we really appreciate it. That well, was thanks a good very much, guys. I very much enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, we'll be following up with you. So I'll yeah. shoot you an email soon, and, uh, and then we can kind yeah, of. Yeah, hopefully we can maybe have a have a second one of these. You know, yeah. chat chat about this football so season much. coming up. Great. All right. Thanks. So.